1: Matthew 2, verses 1 to 12 goes like this. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. This is a fascinating story um, made all the more interesting by the fact that it only appears in the Gospel of Matthew. Um, We need to pay attention when something like this happens because uh, what it means is that the Gospel writer is trying to communicate something specifically. Um, in, In his mind, this particular story is important for his audience. If you're not unfamiliar with the Gospel of Matthew, um, he's really writing in, in this first century. He's writing to, to Jewish people. So it's, a, it's with the Jewish context in mind that he tells this story. Um, so we're just going to explore a little bit uh, today uh, who the Magi are, um, and we're going to be looking at a few significant things that we, that we can just see in these few 12 verses. Um, they don't really say that much, so there's not a whole bunch of, like, sort of cool, like, poetries or songs or, or dialogue that takes place. There's just a few little things. But we're going we're gonna to look at how we can kind of turn up their voice a little bit this morning. So first, first things first, like, who are the Magi? Well, what's really obvious and really important off the bat is that they come from the east. There's a lot of speculation about where exactly from the east means. But uh, really what I think Matthew is trying to emphasize in this is that they are not from Israel. Okay, that is the point. They are not part of the Jewish story or the Jewish context. They are from a different land. They sit outside of this context. Um, There's sort of been a lot of sort of scholarly research into this to try and understand a little bit about who they are. Um, The word magi uh, simply means um, a a magician or a fortune teller or an astrologer. Um, Because they talk a lot about the Star of Bethlehem, which we'll get to in a little bit, um, we can probably safely assume that that, that they're sitting quite heavily within the realm of astrology. Um, But somewhere along the way, like magi became a slightly tricky word. In other parts of the scriptures, when magi or magos shows up, um, it's often, in uh, not a very cool context. They're often uh, very resistant to the work uh, of what the Holy Spirit is up to. So somewhere along the way, um, it just kind of became a little bit more like wise men or three kings or, or something like that. Um, but magi magi is, is, is totally appropriate and totally helpful for us as we study the study story. And certainly Matthew, when he's writing, he's not intimidated by the concept of the magi. In fact, he's pretty bold in talking about them as magi. Um, so anyway, we we sort of know a, a little bit from this, and having researched this a little bit, that they were they were probably uh, involved in in this particular religion called Zoroastrianism, which is a fun word to say. Everyone say it with me: Zoroastrianism. Yeah, yeah it's tricky. Yeah, <laughs> Zoroastrianism is is uh, and listen, I'm no expert in like ancient Iranian uh, religions, um, but there are some there are some really uh, really interesting things about it. Um, <clears throat> For starters, uh, within the context of this religion, they have this idea of, of a monotheistic, so a, a single creator god, um, and they they will often use names for this god such as the Lord of Wisdom uh, or the King of Good, um, and they believe that there was an opposing evil force, um, but that this opposing evil force was not um, was not sort of equal. So there there are some uh, there are some. Similarities uh, between Zoroastrianism and the and the the story of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So there's there's some similarities, and we and we certainly see like in their language that there is that there is something of a similar experience uh, with their God. We don't have tons of Zoroastrian texts, so it's really hard for us to to kind of figure out. But but are some uh, some similarities there. Now, when we come to uh, when we come to the Star of Bethlehem, um, we see that these guys go on a really fascinating journey. Um, oh, there's another little piece of art for you. Um, there's an astronomer called Michael Moho who points out that in the East, when Matthew's talking about it, there's a literal translation of the Greek phrase, "Anatol," which was a technical term used in Greek mathematical astrology about 2,000 years ago. Um, so it describes very specifically um, a planet that would ar- arise on the eastern horizon just before the sun would appear. So if you, you think in the morning time, just next to where the sun would rise up, you'd see like a little star just hanging there on the horizon. It would look like a star, um, but most likely it, w- it would be a planet that's just hanging there. Most of the time, uh, you wouldn't actually be able to see this because of where the sun's positioned, um, the sun would completely block this out. But every now and then this little thing would appear just just before the sun sort of comes up fully for the day. And um, <clears throat> this is called a helio- heliacal rising, a heliacal rising um, of a planet. Um, <clears throat> and and so when the sun just moves, oh sorry, when the planets move a little bit and they're just sort of out of alignment with the sun, you would get this, this little bit of, this little planet that looked like a star going really bright in the sky. And so this is what uh, Ente Anatole refers to in the ancient Greek astro- astrology. And so we think possibly in this instance, if this is this is just one sort of uh, understanding of what might have happened uh, with the Star of Bethlehem or what these astrologers might have seen, these Magi might have seen, um, <clears throat> they, they when they see it pop up, they know within their own sort of story that this would be really significant for anyone who's born on that day. Uh, it means someone of incredible importance is born. Um, and then we also have with the Star of Bethlehem this very interesting instance of a star that sort of hangs over the house. Um, and so this seems like another kind of astrological phenomena. So once again, uh, Michael Mo- uh, Moha, the astronomer, says that um, there's this Greek uh, astrological concept called epano, um, which refers to a particular moment when, when, when sort of planets almost almost cross past each other, and so there's and so almost like when the Earth begins to overtake a particular planet, it begins to look like this thing is hanging in the sky, and so it seems for possibly for these magi that there is a convergence of astrological events that they are ascribing significance to. What's really obvious in the text is that they have some sort of awareness and understanding of the Old Testament texts and prophecies, particularly about someone coming from the line of King David. So so they're aware of what's happening in this this different world to them. They're aware of what's happening in the Jewish context, whether that's part of their Zoroastrianism uh, or whether that's just, just part of like, I don't know, folklore that's around during the day. They're very aware of this. And then they're seeing these astrological events. And if something like what I've just described as is, is the things that they were pointing towards, um, they, would have, they would have seen this as being a really significant uh, moment in the context of human history. So there's something about what they see in the stars, what they see in the sky, that says to them, we have to move towards this thing. We have to move towards this person. This creator God is up to something. And so this becomes a really powerful moment. And so what we can take from this is, is that, that we've got these things. The Magi were obviously very uh, wise and mathematically adept astrologers. Um, like I said before, they obviously had some aware, awareness of Old Testament prophecy that there would be a king that would be born out of the family of David. Um, it's likely that they'd been watching the heavens for uh, and the skies for a number of years, waiting for particular alignments and signals that would foretell the birth of a king. Um And when they identified this thing, when they saw when they saw this activity happening in the sky, that th- they took that as a as an invitation in a moment to move towards and seek out this new king, this prophesied leader. and then what's really important about this that matthew Matthew is really trying to highlight is that these people are outside of the story. they are not from Israel, they are not Jewish, they are completely different, and yet they move towards this thing. So what else is really significant uh, in this story? Well, one of the first things we see is that they, they go straight to, uh, straight to Herod, the, king, the current king at the time. Um, you, you know, a few months ago, I did, I did a big thing on, on Herod, and so I won't go back into it. But what's really interesting about this encounter is that uh, this is one of only sort of two times outside of the Passion Week narrative that we see the phrase king of the Jews used, all right? so there's uh, this is one of the only times we see that um, and i think I think Matthew does it as some sort of like prophetic foreshadowing it's It's like this this event that's about to take place, the whole sort of rolling out and playing out of jesus 's life and ministry um, is sort of is sort of uh, prophetically pointed towards in this moment when these guys walk in and they say. Hey, like, we're looking for the king of the Jews. Um, this would have been a, a very, like, politically charged moment um, because Herod was, um, I mean, he was fanatical about, about his sort of claim and his sort of right to the throne. So in his mind, he was the king of the Jews, and anyone coming to do anything other than to offer him praise, um, offer him affirmation, was something that was, I don't know, heresy. Right or, or treason. It's this 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 is not uh, what Herod is looking for. So he would have been the only one. He would have considered himself the only real king, and this moment uh, would have been wildly provocative. And then there's this other other quite strange thing that happens is, is when he calls together um, all of his all of his sort of prophets and his consultants. Um, one of the things that says is that all of Jerusalem uh, were also really concerned about this event. This is like a really strange thing. Obviously, we can understand a little bit why Herod would be upset, but, but all Jerusalem? Once again, I think like what Matthew is trying to do in this text is to point to uh, the resistant nature of Jesus' own people. We will also see this sort of played out when we get to the Passion Week narratives. And what does it say? Like when when Jesus is being judged before Pilate, it says that like the crowds were, were sort of stirred up in anger. They were like Crying out for his blood, basically. Like, there has always been this, like, this deep resistance to Jesus. And we see it all through his ministry. There are times where he goes to certain towns and it says that he can't perform any miracles just because the, the people there are just so resistant to it. So, there's this sort of, like, foreshadowing that, that uh, Matthew takes us in. And so, yeah, we see this, we see this really bizarre, strange exchange with Herod where um, he then calls them in secretly. He doesn't want anyone else to know this. And he says, hey, go find, go find them. I'm putting my trust in you to go find this baby. Um, come and tell me about it. And we, and we know that he kind of plots evil um, in, in that regard. And so it's this really strange thing that takes place. Um, but one of the interesting thing about the Magi is that Matthew, as he tells the story, he actually draws on another story from the Old Testament. And so in Numbers 22 to 24, when Israel have escaped from Egypt and they're they're sort of traveling around and they're they're discovering their identity and they're sort of growing in God for the first time, um, they find themselves camped uh, right outside the the region of Moab. Um, And the king of Moab, uh, a a guy called Balak, um, he becomes very concerned about this new group of people that are rising up because he's heard the stories He's heard that they, are, that they are blessed by God, and he becomes deeply worried about this. And so what he does is he summons, uh, he summons a, a prophet or a, a divine seer called Balaam. Now, Balaam, interestingly, comes from the East Mountains, right? So they call out this guy from the East Mountains, this guy from sort of outside of the story again. They, they call him, and, and uh, Balak asks Balaam, to curse Israel. But Balaam he has this whole like he has this whole process of of kind of going away and, and seeking God essentially and he comes back and he says look like you can you can hire me or you can bring me forward or I'll go with you um, but actually like I can understand that if I do this I can only do what what I'm told to do by the divine. So he's not a Jewish person. Right? He just lives out in the mountains. He's kind of known for being uh, deeply prophetic. But he says, look, it doesn't matter what you pay me. You can give me all the silver and gold you have. I can only say what I'm told to say by the divine. And so Balak takes Balaam to these three different locations where they do this like altar sacrifice thing. And they go through this whole process. And Balaam each time ends up saying something that blesses Israel and affirms Israel. And Balak gets furious with him. Balaam's like, well, what do you want me to do? All I can do is speak to the truth of this. Like, like God is with these people. He is doing something with this nation. Like, you can't stop it, and I can't do anything but affirm it. And so eventually Balak just sort of sends him away and it just says Balaam got up and returned home, this very sort of quick exit. And what's fascinating about this little chunk of Matthew is that Matthew draws on all of this as like a similar parallel. So Herod in the same way becomes incredibly concerned uh, with, this, with this sort of rising thing like that God seems to be doing something. And so he sort of calls that once again, you've got the Magi similar, similar to Balaam sort of come out from the east wanting to sort of speak truth and affirm truth. And interestingly enough, In almost the exact same way, the Magi kind of exit the narrative just really quickly and really swiftly in the same way that Balaam does in Numbers 24. This would be an interesting thing for you to read if you've got time this week. Numbers 22 to 24. Fascinating couple of chapters. And so we we see this symbolic parallel in these 12 verses to what was happening in the Old Testament. Someone from outside of the context, someone from outside of the religious narrative of those people speaks to the truth and to the goodness and to the beauty of this thing that God is doing. When in the past Balaam was speaking to the rising up of the nation of Israel, now you have these magi coming in and speaking to the birth of this new king. This is the thing that God is doing. So Matthew, I think, does something very, very definitive, very intentional with this piece of text. The next thing he like really points to is uh, the adoration, this this sense of, of rejoicing that the Magi have. This is uh, this is a moment I think of organic, real, raw, powerful, genuine joyful acknowledgement of what God was doing by entering the human story. There is a, there is a, I don't know, just a wonderful sense of submission um, on the Magi's behalf. Particularly, I think, uh, the gifts that they offer are incredibly powerful and, and very meaningful. Um, they are symbolic and valuable. Uh, Oregon, uh, the third century theologian, said this, gold as to a king, myrrh as to a mortal, and incense as to a god. These were gifts that you would give to different people, right? So you would offer gold to kings, myrrh to the mortal, and incense to God. There's an acknowledgement of this, of this incredible story that's going on. God is king, God is human, God is God. Um, so there's this symbolic a- uh, aspect to the gifts. But there's also this, um, this, this value aspect to it. Um, we know as the story unfolds that uh, that Joseph and Mary need to escape to Egypt uh, with Jesus, and uh, what's fascinating about gold, frankincense, and myrrh is that in the first century, um, they're effectively like your travel visa card, right? So if you're if you if you're going out if you're going out of country, you know you need to have something to, to trade with and to live with. And so and so, what's fascinating about those three things in particular is that they are like a universal cur- currency in the in in the first century. And so they are offered, the Magi offer them something not just symbolic, not, not, that doesn't just speak to the story and to the, and to the wonder of it, but they offer something that will be incredibly value uh, in the future as God takes Joseph, Mary, and Jesus into the next thing. And so we see all of this kind of like tied up in these 12 verses as Matthew takes us towards this. And like I was saying before, Matthew is very clear and very bold in his depiction of this story. So there are a few things I think that we have to we have to intentionally draw out of it. The first is that is that the first is this is that the Christmas story is good news for the world. Here Matthew elevates the voice and the experience of the foreigner and the immigrant, the person with a different story. And he emphasizes that their story and their experience really matters. It's amazing how many times in Scripture where the people of faith, the people who are supposedly doing the right thing, it's amazing how much they seem so distant from God. And yet it's the person on the outside, the person from another place, another land, who's able to, in humility, recognize the voice and the leading of God. The Christmas story is good news for every single person in the world. And if it's not good news for every single person in the world, then is it even good news at all? This story in Matthew uh, chapter 2 is a lovely illustration that people can find their way to Christ without necessarily having to like know the right scriptures or to or or, or to sit in a pew every Sunday or to, to, to do whatever. It's like sometimes the, the pathway is a little bit different. And what's particularly interesting about this is that God elevates this relationship and this openness to him above rules. It seems that these people were more attuned in this particular story. It seems that they were more aware of what and more desirous of what God was doing than even the people within his own culture and his own time. So that's the first thing, right? I think it's really important for us that the Christmas story is good news and hope for the world. The second thing I think the Magi teach us is this, is that movement matters, right? So we can't always stay where we are. So that's a very literal playing out of that in this story, where they move from wherever they are in the East towards the person of Jesus, but it's also a movement of the heart. It is a pilgrimage. It is a journey towards something. They had some, they had some elements of the story. They had some tools at their disposal, some, some part of their own cultural narrative. And what did it do? It set them on a journey towards Jesus. And they embarked on that journey in obedience, in faithfulness, in curiosity, Um, with a sense of commitment and even with a sense of protection. The fact that they, you know, they they listen to the dream to not return to Herod. You know, like these are significant things. Like they're very connected to this process that they're on. So movement matters. Um, As they go on this journey, it's like they, they almost fall more in love, and so that that little glimpse of adoration of praise is incredibly beautiful. That that generosity that is extended, uh, it's meaningful. So movement matters. They move towards relationship with God. I um, have always loved in our church that we've got this this little equal-armed cross, and I and and. And that is this Christian symbol that symbolizes the relationship with God and the relationship with each other. That both of these things must be held in tension. That both matter. That both simultaneously help the other as well. That when we are in right relationship with each other, it draws us deeper into relationship with God. And when we are in right relationship with God, we are drawn deeper into relationship with each other. That is a beautiful image. So as we move closer to God, we move closer to each other. And as we move closer to each other, we naturally move closer to God. It's utterly, utterly relational. And so that's what we see play out. There is this movement of the Magi towards Jesus, and there's this like wonderful relationship that is that it, we just see the spark, the kernel of the beginning. So God elevates the relationship over the rules. The obedience, the movement, there's the celebration of that in this moment. So as we draw towards something of a something of a close I guess I just want to I just want to talk about the meaningfulness of pilgrimage you know pilgrimage is is a huge part of our faith tradition people have been going on on various journeys towards God. People, people travel to, to Israel uh, and to Greece and to Spain. They walk the Camino. You know, there are all of these things, but people, people need to go on a journey. And there's something about actually doing the walking, right, the literal movement of pilgrimage that helps kind of connect us a little bit with the heart element of it. But it's not like, it's not really about the physical thing, but it's about this transformation that kind of happens on the way. And this is what I think Advent is designed to be. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a four-week emotional, spiritual, relational pilgrimage. It is a movement towards the Christmas story. Not so that Christmas morning feels awesome when we crack open our presents or, so, or because the carols feel particularly good on Christmas Eve or, you know, whatever. No, but the pilgrimage of, of Advent takes us deeper into the story it, it 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 overwhelms us with the grandness of what god is up to it's it's we actually catch i don't know like the weight and the meaningfulness of god with us god incarnate you know like those aren't just like words or concepts or theological constructs it's something that we feel something that we know not just here, but, but in our heart. It's easy to talk about different astrological ideas about stars in the sky. It's easy to look at the sort of politically charged nature of an encounter with the Magi and King Herod. and It's, it's kind of easy to talk about that stuff. But what's really meaningful is the Magi's desire to pursue this thing, they didn't know what they were walking towards. They didn't know the name. They just knew a direction. And they take a step. And then they ride camels, and then they cross mountains. And it, I mean, the whole thing takes ages. It's high, high probability they weren't hanging out in the stable, to be honest. It's like we're talking about something that was probably eight months, nine months down the line. But they have this moment of, of seeking out and discovering and all they want to do is respond in adoration. And, you know I spent a bunch of time researching art this week like just trying to find these different pieces that I could connect with. And for ages I just googled like wise men art, <laughs> you know. But you know where I found the best images? By by googling the adoration of the magi. And it was like Because that's the point. This movement towards adoration. This is the pilgrimage of Advent that we are on. This movement towards adoration. So I want to invite you to stand. And uh, I just want to pray for you for just a a couple minutes. Because if years been anything like mine, you're feeling a little bit tired this Sunday morning. You've probably just finished up work or you are one of the unlucky few who has to go work tomorrow okay. and Tuesday. You know, but like the year's just, oh, it's, not, it's not quite done yet and you're just feeling a bit wrecked and uh, there's still things that need to be bought and you've still got a whole bunch of cooking to do and it's like, it's just been a big year. And I want to just give a space for you to just Connect with the, the journey once more. Because movement matters, and the movement that you make matters. So, Holy Spirit, would you come? And I don't, if you're feeling like particularly tired or something, maybe it's a good like, hand on the heart type moment. But you know, but just sort of adopt whatever posture feels comfortable. But Holy Spirit, come, come in power and peace. Come in love, come in joy, come in hope. And Holy Spirit, I ask that you would draw us deeper into your story. Into this story. And just as we're in this place, I just want you to just It's like a It's like a little moment of just spiritual service, right? I just want to ask a couple of questions, but when have you last embarked on a journey specifically for the purpose of seeking and worshiping God? When was the last time that was felt like an intentional thing for you? When was the last time you looked to the night sky or out to the ocean? Or out across the fields? When was the last time you you sort of took in the wonder of God's creation? And just asked the question, like, okay, God, where are you? Or ask the question, God, what now? Or ask God the question, what's this about? When was the last time? That just felt like a, a thing for you to do. And I just want to ask in this space, over these next, as these next couple of days, as we come towards Christmas, as we come towards this time with our families and this time of celebration, what steps is God inviting you to take today and tomorrow and Tuesday? Just just we're not talking about 2020 yet. just, just we're talking about a little mini one, a little mini pilgrimage. What steps is God inviting you to take right now that will just mean you can land at a place of adoration come Christmas morning? Holy Spirit, lead us. Lord, you led your people by fire and by cloud. You have led your people by voice. You have led your people by star. You have led your people. And so, Lord, we just look for your leading now. Just lead us towards you. Lead us to that place of adoration.
0: Amen.